Listening closely. Oh, Chad, I've got some news for you. Oh, do you? Yes. Let me hear it. After a long wait, we are finally finished with the second episode of Quiet and Bold Consultants Paraordinary. Excellent. It's called The Innsmouth Bride. Where can I find it? You can find that at quietandbold.com and also on YouTube, as well as a remixed, condensed version of the first two episodes, The Scorned House. I'm suspicious of internet audio entertainment that doesn't have recognizable names in it. <laughs> Is there anybody on this show that I would? know and can trust? Well, there is myself, but also more importantly, Greg Johnson, Rachel Ooh. Lackey, uh-huh. Andrew Lehman, <gasps> Heather Klinky, okay. and of course, Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, f*** that. I'm not listening to this thing. <laughs> Quiet and Bold, Consultants Paraordinary. We'll link out in the show notes. And now it is time for Marches for Dracula. HPPodcraft.com Bella Ralston had made up her mind that her only chance of earning her bread and helping her mother to an occasional crust was by going out into the great unknown world as companion to a lady. She was willing to go to any lady rich enough to pay her a salary and so eccentric as to wish for a hired companion. Five shillings told off reluctantly from one of those sovereigns which were so rare with the mother and daughter and which melted away so quickly... Five solid shillings had been handed to a smartly dressed lady in an office in Harbeck Street West, in the hope that this very superior person would find a situation and a salary for Miss Ralston. Chris, have you ever heard somebody say, like, oh man, I'm having a really hard time. Things just things just aren't working out for me. I'm really at the end of my Draculas. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. No. No, you haven't heard that. Because it wouldn't make any sense. Because there is no end of Draculas. <laughs> they never run out. Draculas no, they are, don't. They're chronic. You can't stop them. All you can do is manage them. Yes. And that's True. what we're going to do today on this episode of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast covering Good Lady Duquesne by mm. Mary Elizabeth Braddon. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. This week launches March is for Draculas. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Blood sucking fiends all month with maybe some other life force draining creatures thrown in for good measure. Who was that reader we heard at the time? Our reader is Kristina Paczynski. She is a wonderful artist, extraordinaire. She is a comic book connoisseur and creator. She has just released, well, not just, but it came out last summer, her amazing graphic novel, Retrograde Orbit. It's so good, I bought two copies of it, one to keep and one to lend out. That's how good it is. But you wow. can find all of her amazing books and products on Etsy and on our Patreon page. We'll link out to it in the show notes. Thanks, Christina, for reading and welcome to the show. Mary Elizabeth Braddon was born in 1835 in London. She's best known for her 1882 sensation novel, Lady Audley's Secret. Her mother split from her father when she was five. When she was 10, her brother split for India, then later settled in Australia, where he eventually became the premier of Tasmania. Wow. So a pretty typical sibling dynamic. (laughs) She supported herself and her mother by working as an actress for a while, uh, probably booking commercials for corsets and cocaine sure. toothing drops, that kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. But she lost interest in acting as she began writing novels. Braddon wrote over 80 novels in her life. Several were supernatural. This bit is right out of a gothic novel. In 1860, Mary met John Maxwell, a publisher of periodicals, and moved in with him. However, Maxwell was already married with five children and a wife living in an asylum in Ireland. Mary acted as stepmother to his children until 1874 when Maxwell's wife died and they were able to get married. She had six children by him. Whoa. You know, women often say sense of humor. That's what I really look for in a man. But when you look at the evidence, I Uh think that what women 
actually find most attractive in a man is having a crazy wife locked up somewhere <laughs> in attic ireland doesn't matter where first comes love then comes marriage then comes confinement then comes love then comes marriage there you go yeah it's that that old saying <laughs> she died 1915 at the ripe old age of 79 by 19th century standards obviously that's pretty good by any standard i think 79 yeah. i wonder if she was prolonging her life unnaturally oh our story begins with this young 18 Dude, hold on. Hey, are you okay? <laughs> Just that sound you made. I feel like I might have freaked you out too much. I'm a little freaked out. Okay. There's so many Draculas running around this month. I know. I know. There's a lot of Draculas Puts me on, on edge. I know. I know. Well, let's take a moment, dive into this story. It begins with this young 18-year-old woman, Bella. She lives with her poor mother and has decided it is high time for her to start kicking in. So she goes to this woman, a one-person agency that hooks young ladies up with jobs to be companions for wealthy women. The woman that runs this place is referred to as the superior person. Yeah, I was on Bella's side right away because she gets ripped off in this first paragraph that we heard, having Mm -hmm. to pay five shillings just for a meeting. It's that thing, you know, I've been lucky enough to have decent jobs, but I've also been really poor, sell plasma for lunch level poor. Mm -hmm. And it costs way more money to be poor. Oh, yeah. All those little surcharges are such a higher percentage of what you have what your resources are and i Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've ever been in that cycle where you overdraft and then the penalties for overdrafting cause you to overdraft again and then it just keeps going like that Mm -hmm. or or just a parking ticket destroys your budget yeah you know shopping if you don't have the means space transportation to buy in bulk you have to buy more expensive single use items from the corner store you know it's very expensive to be poor it sounds like a joke but it's not and some habits you never get rid of i mean i could have a lamborghini and a billion dollars in the bank and i still would not valet my car that little charge is so offensive to me. I will park my Lamborghini in a tree before I give it five, five bucks to drive it to a space in the parking lot that I'm standing in. I can uh-huh. see the space. Yeah. I will tie my Lamborghini to a rope and tie the rope to the tree and put a brick on the gas pedal and let the car drive around in circles by itself <laughs> while I have dinner in order to avoid going to a valet. Five dollars. It's very. It has been very dear to me at times. Oh my just god! Yeah. These five shillings are very dear to Bella and her mother. She's got to give this money up without knowing if she's even going to get anything out of this investment. Yep. And so, anyway, my point is just I could relate to her situation. Absolutely, absolutely. The superior person, SP for short, is baffled as to why this girl of no talent or experience has come to her. But Bella has paid her fee, so superior person has to give it a go. Bella explains that her mother is not well and that she needs to step up and support her. We can see that Bella is very sweet and eager. She's very talkative as well, and that doesn't seem to be winning her any points with SP. She's competent and willing, but doesn't have any advantages that set her apart from other women who are undoubtedly using the service. She doesn't have the education to be a governess, so she's got to look for an eccentric that wants a companion. And and as you say, she's talkative, but being talkative is already a strike against her. The superior person says, the kind of ladies who come to me would not care for a talkative companion. My connection lies chiefly among the aristocracy, and in that class, considerable deference is expected. It's so great that Braddon doesn't name this character, that it's just the superior person, or doesn't name her right away when we're yeah. meeting her, because she represents every gatekeeper who exploits a little leverage in life. A person who is not in any demonstrable way better than you, but because of a power situation can basically make you grovel. There's so oh. many of these people day to day. Your boss, the mechanic, your landlord, the, you know, the person at the gate of the parking garage Mm -hmm. even if it's not monetary just having to fit into a new situation or an institution like school or a career field you know there's people in the know with connections that that you want to please and so you kind of have to try to 
act for their approval and these are the superior people so mm-hmm. I thought that was a really cool device to name her that way so the superior person tells bella that if anything shows up she'll write her bella goes back home and she does a 15 minute impersonation set for her mom and the landlady <laughs> she's pretending to be the superior person and yeah. they love it they are laughing their asses off this girl's got spunk She's punching up. That's how comedy works. She's a poor improviser trying to get a day job as a personal assistant. This is a very Los Angeles story she's got here. And that gets us into chapter two. Bella's waiting day after day, but nothing comes. She waits a week and then finally she just goes back to SP's office. Superior person says, I don't have anything for you. You're too young, said the person. And you want a salary? Of course I do, answered Bella. Don't other people want salaries? Young ladies at your age generally want a comfortable home. I don't, snapped Bella. I want to help my mother. Superior person says, all right, come back in a week or I'll write you if something happens sooner. You should be happy with an unpaid internship. I, I, I love that. Oh. Don't other, she says, don't other people want salaries? Because <laughs> that's another way poor people get screwed. It's hard to take oh. work just for the experience. But people yeah. with resources can go do something. I'm going to go be a photographer's assistant this summer. So I can make connections and they're not paying me, but I'm just going to go do that. Uh-huh. I mean, I've interned. I've also hired a lot of interns. So I've been on the other side of it, but yep. um, but I never got too upset if they just ghosted because you kind of have to understand. Yep. But Bella is persistent and persistence is the skill you've got to have to overcome these types of economic disadvantages. She keeps going back to see the superior person, following up, finding out if there's a, a position for her. So one day she goes back to superior person's office and there's an old fashioned chariot with fancy coachman. Says it looks like a fairy godmother's coach, thought Bella. I shouldn't wonder if it began by being a pumpkin. Uh, actually, Bella, chariots are not made out of pumpkins. Um, they were constructed out of wood. <laughs> Send. Bella goes inside and she finds superior person with a very, very old lady, the owner of the fancy coach. Never had she seen anyone as old as the old lady sitting by the person's fire. A little old figure wrapped from chin to feet in an ermine mantle. A withered old face under a plumed bonnet. A face so wasted by age that it seemed only a pair of eyes and a peaked chin. The nose was peaked too, but between the sharply pointed chin and the great shining eyes, the small aquiline nose was hardly visible. This is Miss Ralston, Lady Duquesne. Claw-like fingers, flashing with jewels, lifted a double eyeglass to Lady Duquesne's shining black eyes, and through the glasses, Bella saw those unnaturally bright eyes magnified to a gigantic size and glaring at her awfully. Lady Duquesne comes in and knocks superior person off of her perch, because Lady Duquesne is way more superior. Lady Duquesne asks about Bella's health, her activity, all that. Superior person says that she thinks that Bella might be a good match for her if her references come through. But Lady Duquesne says, I don't need references. This girl will do. Lady Duquesne says that she wants a healthy girl. Superior person mentions that she had a bad experience with one of her last ones, Miss Thompson, who seemed fine when she took the job. Something happened to her previous companion. Arches for Dracula. <laughs> Whoa. It's so true. Something happened to Thompson, who was healthy when she started. Sounds very Dracula-ish. Something similar even happened to another companion before that, Miss Blandy, who also started healthy but apparently ended otherwise. Miss Blandy, also an excellent name for a a past (laughs) victim we don't need to get to know. Uh, Lady Duquesne wants Bella to stay with her in Italy for a year, to which Bella is super stoked. It's a dream come true for her, even though she's going to miss her mother. Uh, Speaking of stoked, a lot of people think that's a surfing term. 
you know, that it came from surf culture, but it actually comes from the area era of this story, the 1890s. Hmm. Um, the theater business was really competitive at the time. People were trying different gimmicks to get ahead. And at the Lyceum Theater, where uh, Bram Stoker was the business manager, he had an idea. During performances, he would sneak out into the theater and crawl up behind random patrons and give them a little butterfly kisses on the back of the neck. <laughs> Just kind of like lightly rub his whiskers on the nape. And then he'd vanish into the shadows. And people loved it. It was, you know, it was huge. It was like the 3D of the time. Uh, really made theater more exciting, made these productions more interactive, and people called it getting stoked because it was Brom Stoker that did it. You know, I saw the other melodrama the other night and I got so stoked. It was a very sought after experience that, you know, we still reference today without knowing. Wow, I've learned so much. That comes from the author of Dracula. But Bram Stoker, uh, he was apparently lifelong friends with Mary Elizabeth Braddon. That is true, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, this story was published in The Strand in 1896, while Stoker was writing Dracula to be published in 1897. So mm. it's entirely possible that there was some cross-pollination. They may have been discussing these vampiric ideas together, talking about blood transfusions. Who knows? Probably during marches for Dracula's of 1896. <laughs> Bram Stoker himself would go out into the audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. The playwright, the the producer, he would go out himself and sneak yeah. around and rub his beard on people's lightly. necks. Very lightly. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't creepy. It's them. interactive. Yes. No. Who said it was? I didn't say creepy. No. Sounds delightful. That's the tragedy of modern media is that we've lost out on experiences like that. <laughs> So true. Yeah. <laughs> so Lady Duquesne is going to pay Bella a hundred pounds a year, which is about twelve thousand pounds by today's standards. To be a friend, you know, it's yeah. impossibly to be a companion, even uh, less than a friend. It's a, it's an impossibly good gig. Uh, Lady Duquesne leaves. The superior person tells Bella that Lady Duquesne is one of her best customers, and it's a cushy job. She doesn't really do anything. At all. She doesn't have very many demands that are going to be made on mm-hmm. her Bella, so she can just kind of hang out, basically, and just get paid for it. She also explains that the other companion left because of her health, and it, it broke down. She got ill. She tells Bella that she won't have to pay for anything while she's in the employ of Lady Duquesne. She'll get all of her meals. She'll get her a place to live. All that stuff. It will be Everything's taken care of. She just has to live in the lap of luxury. That's all. Now, before Bella leaves, a superior person, of course, takes her 10% commission on top of the five shillings Bella paid her to find work for her. Mm-hmm. And that gets us into chapter three. The next chapter begins with a letter Bella's writing to her mother. She's in Reno, Italy, and she goes on and on about how amazing Italy is. She's staying at a luxurious hotel. Her room is inside of Lady Duquesne's suite. So she's got her own room inside a room. It's pretty crazy. The letter is mostly sweet, but it's laced. I found that it was laced with just a little bit of cruelty towards her mother. I don't know if you noticed that. It's like a subtle psychological thing where you get to experience something and you just want to rub it in somebody else's face. She describes the grandeur of the hotel, then writes, just picture it all. You could never imagine the luxury of this hotel. (laughs) And she goes on to talk about the beautiful weather and the scenery and contrast it to damp old England. And she writes this near the end. I feel a selfish wretch for enjoying all my luxuries while you, who want them so much more than I, have none of them. Hardly know what they are like, do you, dearest? 
She's been in this hotel wow. a week, and she's already condescending a little Jeez. bit. You know, yeah. I, I read that into it. And then she twists the knife, and she says, For my scamp of a father began to go to the dog soon after you were married, and since then life has been all trouble and care and struggle for you. It's like, I doubt mom needs to be reminded of that. That's a, I'm sure that's a history that she well knows. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, and now maybe Bella was just trying to empathize with her mother and communicate with her that she understands the sacrifices her mother made. Maybe. No, no, I think that she definitely is doing that. I just think that Braddon is very sophisticated in the way she puts these things together. Oh, yes. And I think that that small bit of condescension to demarcate this shift into a more rich life Mm -hmm. is very intentional. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Lady Duquesne asks very little of Bella. She has her read to her a bit, but mostly she just lets Bella run off on her own and do whatever she wants. While hanging around, Bella makes friends with this girl, Loda, who's also English, and she's there with her brother who has finished his medical degree, but hasn't yet started practicing as a doctor. She says this about her brother. He treats me like a child, she told me. But I don't mind, for it's nice to know somebody loves me and cares about what I do, and even about my thoughts. I've read that this story is supposed to be a bit of a send-up, comedic in a way. So is this all kind of tongue-in-cheek where she's making fun of this sort of type of woman? You know, it all depends on your worldview. So a lot of people are going to read the story and not even think about that line. Especially in the the late 19th century. Right. They're not even going to look at that. They'll go, yeah, oh, wow, yeah, he must really like her. He's thinking about her thoughts. But, you know, for the right audience, they're going to say, oh, you guys, you know, this is hilarious to to point this out. You know, I think I think Bella is a stand in for what a girl is supposed to be at this Mm -hmm. time. And again, this is indicated by the name. Bella, beautiful. She's earnest and innocent and barely has a thought in her head. And she never really generates a thought in her head in this story. She doesn't change or learn anything. She's an immutable main character. In fact, I don't even think she's the main character, really. She's there to be rescued. And not in the heroic sense of the word, really. It's more of the, you know, you're throwing out some artwork and I say, oh, I could use that for my apartment. I hang it up and tell people I rescued this Lamborghini poster (laughs) from Lackey. Super stoked about it. It has more to do with a change of ownership than it has to do with really rescuing somebody. But that line that you point out is hilarious. You know, can you believe it even cares about my thoughts? It really is sad. It is. (laughs) Which is what makes it funny. It's really funny, yeah. So Bella talks to her mother about how she and her are very close and no man would ever come between them. Her husband would have to understand that he comes second and Bella's mother comes first. Which is all just in service to her idealized virginal state. I think, you know, that's code for she's not boy crazy. Right. And her mother knows that she's homesick. Bella writes every week and is positive, but the novelty is clearly wearing off. It's like that third time you get stoked. (laughs) (laughs) Not as big of a deal. What are they doing at the other theater? (laughs) Felt these whiskers enough. (laughs) (laughs) So now uh, Loda and her brother have moved on somewhere else into Italy and Bella is feeling very lonely. One day, while she's wandering around the hotel, she overhears two old ladies talking about Lady D. Supposedly, Lady D is old, really old, maybe a hundred years old, but they're not sure. Arches for Dracula. <laughs> they also talk about her quack of a doctor, Dr. Peravicini, but one of the ladies insists he's what's keeping her alive. And they say he's butt ugly. Well, They say he certainly has an unpleasant countenance, which is 1890s for butt ugly. Those ladies are serving cold lunch. They go on to say that Lady D is good to her servants and loose with her money. However, she's had a few girls die in her service. Bella, she doesn't pay any mind to those ladies since them ain't paying her bills. (laughs) 
<laughs> They're just jealous. Something is niggling in her brain about these other girls. So she asks Lady Duquesne's maid about them, and she says they were feeble and too lazy and just got sick. Bella says, I sleep well enough, but I have a strange dream several times since I've been in Italy. Ah, you better not begin to think about dreams, or you will be like those other girls. They were dreamers, and they dreamt themselves into the cemetery. <laughs> Isn't this made fun? Yeah, man. She's a good time, this lady. I once knew a guy who thought about dreams and he was murdered. <laughs> shot in the face by his dog. <laughs> who went insane. <laughs> so Bella has trouble sleeping. She has very troubling dreams. The dream troubled her a little. Not because it was a ghastly or frightening dream, but on account of sensations which she had never felt before in sleep. A whirring of wheels that went round in her brain... A great noise like a whirlwind, but rhythmical like the ticking of a gigantic clock. And then, in the midst of this uproar as of winds and waves, she seemed to sink into a gulf of unconsciousness, out of sleep into far deeper sleep. Total extinction. And then, after that blank interval, there had come the sound of voices, and then again the whir of wheels, louder and louder, and again the blank. And then she knew no more till morning, when she awoke feeling languid and oppressed. She also has been getting bit by mosquitoes. One bite is very bad. Goes to Dr. Peravicini and he says, oh yeah, he has caught you on top of a vein. What a vampire. But there's no harm done, Signorina. Uh, nothing that a little dressing of mine won't heal. Marches for Dracula. I wish she could hear that whispering. She would know. <laughs> Caravaccini is obviously complicit in this vampire drama that's about to unfold, but hasn't put a lot of thought into the cover-up because no. this mosquito story is pretty lame. Does the mosquito have a switchblade? Because <laughs> these aren't little bumps. It's a big, angry mark. Yes. You'd think Bella would understand the difference, but uh, oh well. So these big wounds would pop up every once in a while, and Dr. P would tend to the wounds. We have another letter to Bella's mom. She's sending her money for the next quarter of the year, so it's been about three months. She says things are boring, but that Lady D is going up to Bellagio with her. There she's going to meet up with Loda and her brother, and that gets us into Chapter 4. Now we switch uh, to Loda and her brother, Herbert's perspective. Seems that Bella has made quite an impression on them. Loda can see that her brother is smitten with Bella, but reminds him that Bella is poor and not good wife material. Which leads to some excellent writing. It says, In two years' hospital practice, Herbert had seen too much of the grim realities of life to retain any prejudices about rank. Cancer, tuberculosis, gangrene leave a man with little respect for the outward differences which vary the the husk of humanity. The colonel is always the same, fearfully and wonderfully made, a subject for pity and terror. So his superpower is that he sees past social structure. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I just read next week's story, Luella Miller, and it seems like the heroes in that story and this one, and a lot of these vampire-style stories are the ones who are willing to shake the cage a bit. There's a disease or predation happening that everybody's ignoring in order to keep up appearances in this kind of caste system. The ones who stop it are the ones willing to shine a light on this underlying rot, who aren't complacent in this passive social order. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that Braddon took heat for being maybe too titillating in her novels, but I think the real subversion is here. It's the hero thinks that rank and social standing don't matter because we're all just rotting hunks of flesh. Well, I think there's also a lot to say about... You know, aristocracy being a vampire on society. Well, that's definitely present here, yeah. They're sucking off the lifeblood of the working people, and they're the ones that are getting the benefits from it when everybody's being left to die. So it's a bit overt here, but I think most vampire 
modern vampire stuff that that's part of it. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's an interesting duel, and we'll talk about this actually. I think probably when we get into Llewellyn Miller more next week. But there you go. It's a dual thing too, though, right? Because you have the wealthy who are who are doing that, but then you also have the ecosystem of parasites that live off the wealthy. Yep. That she's in right now. But there's this doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, there've been these other girls. It's it, there's this French maid. There's a whole world that revolves around this wealthy person who does nothing. Yeah. And everybody's keeping her propped up because there's an income in it. So that's an interesting aspect of that as well. Yeah. So they arrive in Bellagio in May. When they see Bella, they almost don't recognize her. She is tore up. (laughs) They ask if she has the flu and she says no. She thinks it's just something in the air of Farino that doesn't agree with her. And Herbert's like, no, something is wrong with you. She says, of course, there's nothing wrong with me. Dr. P would have noticed. And Herbert's like, that guy's a creep. So later, Bella is telling Herbert about her dreams, how in the midst of sleep, there came a sudden sense of suffocation. And then those whirring wheels, so loud, so terrible. He goes, have you ever been chloroformed before? You know, like at the dentist? And she says, no. That's strange, though, that you mentioned that, because Dr. P asked me the same thing when I started working for Lady Duquesne. I had a roommate who asked me that in college as well. (laughs) Huh, that's similar dreams. Seems odd to me now. Well, let's table that for now. (laughs) She says she used to be strong and healthy, but Italy doesn't seem to agree with her. Herbert suggests that being cooped up with Lady Duquesne maybe is the problem, but then she goes, no, I'm free to do what I want most of the time. So she tells Herbert not to worry. Dr. P knows how to take care of her mosquito bites. To which Herbert says, there are no mosquitoes around here now. And Bella says, oh, yes, there are. Take a look at my my mosquito bites. And he thinks that she's messing with him. Those aren't mosquito bites. Those are wounds from blood being drawn. But she says that she's never had blood drawn. And he looks and he can see that there are lots of scars on her arm. She's a heroin addict. (laughs) No, he's he's understanding pretty quickly. Bella insists that she'll be fine. And says that since Herbert has given her tonic, that has made her feel much, much better. And Lady Duquesne has noticed this and she wants to meet Herbert. And he says, well, he wants to meet her as well. So Bella arranges for a meeting that night. Stafford saw a small bent figure crouching over the piled up olive logs a shrunken old figure in a gorgeous garment of black and crimson brocade, a skinny throat emerging from a mass of old Venetian lace, clasped with diamonds that flashed like fireflies as the trembling old head turned towards him. The eyes that looked at him out of the face were almost as bright as the diamonds, the only living feature in that narrow parchment mask. He had seen terrible faces in the hospital, faces on which disease had set dreadful marks, but he had never seen a face that impressed him so painfully as this withered countenance, with its indescribable horror of death outlived, a face that should have been hidden under a coffin lid years and years ago. The indescribable horror of death outlived. Mm. There is the the mystery of the parasitic illness in all these vampire tales, but I think specifically this story, I think that quest for immortality is really the focus of monstrosity mm-hmm. because it's it's not a Dracula-ish immortality. It's just simply the prolonging of life even if it's not being well lived. She asks him where he studied. He said Edinburgh and Paris. Two good schools. And you know all the newfangled theories, the modern discoveries that remind one of the medieval witchcraft of Albertus Magnus and George Ripley. You have studied hypnotism? 
Electricity? And the transfusion of blood, said Stafford, very slowly, looking at Paravicini. Oh, man, it is on! Yeah, he's the Van Helsing here. Except Van Helsing was into blood transfusions. He's going to fight against blood transfusions. Yes. She asks if he studied anything that will increase her lifespan. Dr. P is getting old, and his ways are out of date. And he's right there in the room with her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Herbert asks how old she is, and she says she was born the day Louis XVI was guillotined which was the 21st of January, 1793. So she's not that old. Yeah, at this point, that would only make her, uh, you know, 90. I mean, it's old, but it's not unnaturally old. It's under 100. Norman Lloyd is older than her at 105 years old, and and he still loves Dean. (laughs) He loves him. Now, Herbert, he calls her out. He says, you're chloroforming young women and taking their blood without them knowing it. You're going to stop or I'm going to go to the authorities. Dr. P is like, I've done nothing wrong. Let your cops come at me. Lady Duquesne quickly says, take Bella away. I don't want any more girls to die in my service. There are plenty of girls in the world, she says. Plenty to spare. So at first it seems like, oh, she's repenting. But then she's like, well, you know, it's not really that bad. There's all these girls that are just hanging around doing nothing. But then Herbert says, if you ever take another English girl in your service, (laughs) I will tell everyone what you've done. It's just that attention was called to it. Uh You know, he... He pointed out, I know what you're doing. You're doing this. You would think that that would cause there to be some standoff. You won't ruin my plan to be younger. But instead, it's okay. You can have her. Don't worry about it. It's not worth the fight from the criminal. I'll just move on to the next mark. And that's a lot more realistic about the way the world works. you know. Yeah. So Lady Duquesne says, I don't believe in the experiments anyway. Take her away. I'll find some other brilliant mind to keep me alive with some new method. Here. And she writes a letter and gives a check for Bella for a thousand pounds. A settlement, basically. Yeah. So the next day, Herbert and Loda take Bella out of town and he takes care of her. Bella, she's very unwell. And sad that she's losing her job because she stays ignorant. She doesn't understand what happened there. Nobody lets her know what's up. They just decide she believes in these giant mosquitoes. Let her keep doing that. She thinks she was fired for being so sickly, which is even more sad. I know. She gets better and Herbert gives her a letter from Lady Duquesne and it says, goodbye, child. Go and marry your doctor. I enclose a farewell gift for your trousseau. Adeline Duquesne. She gets that check for a thousand pounds, which is 10 years salary at the rate mm-hmm. that she was working at. And she is super stoked. So they're all set to go back to England. The question of their future relations must have been satisfactorily settled before they crossed the channel. For Bella's next letter to her mother communicated three startling facts. First, that the enclosed cheque for £1,000 was to be invested in debenture stock in Mrs Ralston's name and was to be her very own income and principal for the rest of her life. Next, that Bella was going home to Walworth immediately. And last, that she was going to be married to Mr Herbert Stafford in the following autumn. And I am sure you will adore him, Mother, as much as I do, wrote Bella. It is all good Lady Duquesne's doing... I never could have married if I had not secured that little nest egg for you. Herbert says we shall be able to add to it as the years go by, and that wherever we live there shall be always a room in our house for you. The word mother-in-law has no terrors for him. And that's the end of the story. Kind of reminds me of an old joke in which an old man goes to the doctor and says, Doc, I can't pee. And the doctor says, how old are you? The old man says, I'm 95. And the doctor says, well, haven't you peed enough? <laughs> Which kind of happens in the story where he's like, how old are you? Oh, get out of here. You, you've had your time. Yeah. And it's it's that idea of the old sucking away the vitality of the young and doing nothing with it. Right. Yeah. Because Dracula, at least, is sort of out there trying to 
take over the planet in a way or create a race of vampires. Whatever, or yeah. You know, whatever it is he's doing, he's got some kind of draculating plan happening. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't really mention it as we were doing the summary here, but Lady Duquesne's days are described in the story, and she spends them doing nothing. Yeah. She sleeps. She sits around outside. That's pretty much it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I like doing those things, too. But at the expense <laughs> of young people who are just starting their lives, it's obviously not good. So I think on the surface, this is a pretty predictable tale, but it is about society and work and economics and the rot that can flourish when the old guard refuses to cede power. Well, I was surprised how it was giving me all those hints that it was a vampire story, like as in a a supernatural vampire story I thought was going to be the case here, but it totally subverts that expectation. Like she sets me up to think that that's going to happen. And then you find out it's just some pervy doctor chloroforming some woman and then stealing her blood from her so that, that this old lady can have it infused i'm guessing is what was going yeah on. i think it's blood I, I think so because just that was such a prevalent part of dracula as well i mean i think at the time they were thinking about these blood transfusions quite a bit but also we don't even know if it's working what he's doing because she could have just lived to this 95 years old yeah, on her own of course so there's nothing supernatural i was kind of expecting at this moment when herbert confronted her that maybe she was going to throw off that that ermine cowl and like you know be strong and like jump on him or something like that and nothing like that happens in fact it's almost anticlimactic in a way because they just sort of admit they were wrong and then pay him off basically and and that's it it just kind of like you said there's a realism to it that is surprising and interesting and very different and of course there's so many layers to the story and that topic of science i think you could talk about for a while too what perspectives are we being shown of modern science in this story. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the hero is the real doctor who says, what? And he uses observable things to create a conclusion that's reasonable, right? But then you have this other doctor who's a quack who is either actually making her live longer through some evil science, but that comes at the expense of healthy people or is doing something that's just a placebo and taking advantage of her mm-hmm. yeah it's uh i liked this one a lot you, you know what i want to thank our reader today for doing such a great job i do my good friend christina Baczynski, amazing writer and artist go check out her graphic novel retrograde orbit it's a beautiful science fiction story that is touching and thoughtful and totally cool we will link out and i also want to thank some of our patrons starting with Lee Cosgrove. Thank you, Lee. I'd like to thank Mark Ord. Sponge finger. <laughs> like to thank you. I'd like to thank Jennifer Finch. Thank you. I'd like to thank Christian Salian. I'd like to thank Stephanie Harris. I'd like to thank Kale Anderson. Thank you, Craig Mitchell. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Ken Frankovich. That's all we've got for this week. It's our kickoff for Marches for Dracula. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with Luella Miller next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. <laughs> hppodcraft.com